Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, for the Heming Brainiac Podcast, Part 10, Chapter 2. Hanno is a bad student. Will his father's influence rub off on him? Those kind of two questions, or two discussion prompts, merged into one. They don't really flow together, but I've asked it if it's one question. It might be a bit confusing. Um, Hanno is being bullied, says Swim says I'm a fishy. That sucks. But the main, main reason that Hanno avoided if at all possible, going swimming or ice skating or joining in gymnastics was that the fact that Consul Hagenstrom's two sons who participated in all such activities to great acclaim had it in for him. Tech says, but it's great to have a friend like Kai that fights back. Indeed, it is nice. Why do we feel this way for Hanno? Like, it's nice when he's got a friend. It's nice when he takes an interest in music and is passionate about something. Like, all right from the start, it's like... He's kind of been on the back foot, and we're just happy to see him, uh, you know, get a little win. Uh, it's an interesting one. I can't really remember how the, the the character was set up in the first place to achieve that, where every time he gets a little win, we feel um, kind of pleased for him. Anyway, uh, not much to discuss, <coughs> apparently, excuse me, on chapter two. So let's dive into chapter 3. The extended summer trip, which had once been customary with the Buddenbrooks, had now been given up for some years indeed when the Frau Senator in the previous spring had wished to make her old father in Amsterdam a visit and play a few duets with him. The Senator gave his consent rather curtly, but it had become the rule for Goethe, Little, Johann and Fräulein Jungmann to spend the holidays at the Kerr House in Travermundi for the sake of Hanno's health. Remember when... um. Tony was just a kid going to Travamundi, and now it's like she's an old lady almost, it feels. Um, anyway, summer holidays at the seashore. Did anybody really understand the joy of that? After the dragging monotony and worry of the endless school terms came four weeks of peaceful, carefree seclusion, full of the good smell of seaweed and the whispering of the gentle surf. Four weeks at the beginning of it seemed endless. You could not believe that it would end. It was almost indelicate to suggest such a thing. Little Johan could not comprehend the crudity of a master who would say, After the holidays we shall take up our work at the, this or that point. After the holidays he appeared to be already rejoicing in the thought, this strange man in the shiny worsted suit. After the holidays, what a thought! And how far, far off in the grey distance lay everything that was on the other side of the holidays, on the other side of those four weeks. The inspection of the school report, with its record of examinations well or badly got through, would be at last over, and the journey in the overcrowded carriage. Hanno would wake the first morning in his room at the Kerr House in one of the Swiss cottages that were united by a small gallery to the main building and the pastry shop. He would have a vague feeling of happiness that mounted in his brain and made his heart contract. He would open his eyes and look with eager pleasure at the old-fashioned furniture of the cleanly little room, a moment of dazed and sleepy bliss, and he would be conscious that he was in Trev Monday for four immeasurable weeks in Trev Monday. He did not stir. He lay on his back in the narrow yellow wooden bed, the linen of which was extremely thin and soft with age. He even shut his eyes again and felt his crisp his chest rising in deep, slow breaths or of, ha of happy anticipation. The room lay in yellow daylight that came in through the stripped blind. 
Everything was still, Mama and Ida Yulman were asleep, nothing was to be heard but a measured peaceful sound which meant that the boy was making the gravelled paths of the curd garden below and the buzzing of a fly that had got between the blind and the window and was storming the pane. You could see his shadow shooting about in long zigzag lines. Peace! Only the sound of the rake and the dull buzzing noise, this gently animated quiet filled little Johan with a priceless sensation, the feeling of quiet, well-cared-for, elegant repose which was the atmosphere of the resort and which he loved better than anything else. Thank God none of the shiny worsted coats who were the chosen representatives of grammar and the rule of three in this earth was in the least likely to come here, for here it was rather exclusive and expensive. An access of joy and access of joy made him spring up and run barefoot to the window. Excess, maybe, that was meant to be? He put up the blind and unfastened the white-painted hook of the window, and as he opened it, the fly escaped and flew away over the flower beds and the gravelled paths. The music pavilion, standing in a half-circle of beech trees opposite the main building, was still empty and quiet. The Lushfin field which took its name from the lighthouse that stood on it somewhere off to the right, stretched its extent to short sparse grass under the pale sky to a point where the grass passed into the growth of tall, coarse water plants, and then came the sand and its rows of little wooden huts and tall wicker beach chairs looking out at the sea. It lay there, the sea, in peaceful morning light, striped blue and green, and a steamer came in from Copenhagen between the two buoys that marked its course, and one did not need to know whether it was the Nyad or the Friedrich Overdieck. Hanno Buddenbrook drew in a deep, quiet, blissful breath of the spicy air from the sea and greeted her tenderly with a loving, speechless, grateful look. Then the day began, the first of those paltry twenty-eight days which seemed in the beginning like an eternity of bliss and which flew by with such desperate haste after the first two or three. They breakfasted on the balcony or under the great chestnut tree near the children's playground where the swing hung. Everything, the smell of the freshly washed tablecloth when the waiter shook it out, the tissue paper serviettes, the unaccustomed bread, the eggs they ate out of little metal cups with ordinary spoons instead of bone ones like those at home, all this and everything enchanted little Johan, and all that followed was so easy and carefree, such a wonderfully idle and protected life. There was the forenoon in the beach, while the Kerr House Band gave its morning program, the lying and resting at the foot of the beach chair, the delicious dreamy play with the soft sand that did not make you dirty while you let your eyes rove idly and loose themselves in the green and blue infinity beyond. There was the air that swept in from the infinity, strong, free, wild, gently sighing and deliciously scented. It seemed to enfold you round, to veil your hearing and make you pleasantly giddy and blessedly submerge all consciousness of time and space, and the bathing here was a different affair altogether from that in her Amuskin's establishment. There was no duckweed here, and the light green water foamed away in crystalline clearness when you stirred it up. Instead of a slimy wooden floor, there was soft sand that to caress the foot, and Consul Hagenstrom's sons were far away in Norway or the Tyrol. The Consul loved to make an extended journey in the holidays, and why shouldn't he? A walk followed to warm oneself up along the beach to Seagull Rock or Ocean Temple, a little lunch by the beach chair, then the time came to go up to one's room for an hour's rest before making a toilet for the table d'auteur. The table d'auteur, 
was very gay for this. For some reason, Google just lit up on my phone. <laughs> Did I say something just now that sounded like, okay, Google? Strange. For this was a good season at the baths, and the great dining room was filled with acquiescences of Buddenbrook's Hamburg families and even some Russians and English people. A black-clad gentleman sat at a tiny table and served the soup out of a silver tureen. There were four courses, and the food tasted nicer and more seasoned than that at home, and many people drank champagne. These were the single gentlemen who did not allow their business to keep them chained in town all week and who got up some little games of roulette after dinner. Consul Peter Dolman, who had left his daughter at home and told such extremely funny stories that the ladies from Hamburg laughed till their sides ached, and they begged him for mercy. Senator Dr. Kramer, the old superintendent of police, Uncle Christian, and his friend Dr. Giuseppe, who was also without his family and paid everything for Uncle Christian. After dinner, the grown-ups drank coffee under the awnings of the pastry shop and the band played, and Hanno sat on a chair close to the steps of the pavilion and listened unwearied. He was settled for the afternoon. There was a shooting gallery in the Kerr Garden and at night of the Swiss cottage where the stables with horses and donkeys and the cows whose foaming fragrant milk one drank warm every evening. One could go walking in the little town or along the front. One could go out to the Prival in a boat and look for amber on the beach or play croquette in the children's playground or listen to Ida Jungman reading aloud sitting on a bench on the wooded hillside where hung the great bell for the table d'hote. But best of all was it to go back to the beach and sit in the twilight on the end of the breakwater with your face turned to the open horizon. Great ships passed by and you signalled them with your handkerchief and you listened to the little waves slapping softly against the stones and the whole space about you was filled with a soft and mighty sighing. It spoke so benignly to little Johann, it bade him close his eyes, it told him that all was well. Just then Ida would say, Come, little Hanno, it's supper time, we must go. If you were to sit here and go to sleep, you'd die. How calm his heart felt, how evenly it beat after a visit to the sea. Then he had his supper in his room, for his mother ate later, down in the glass veranda and drank milk and malt extract and lay down in his little bed between the soft old linen sheets and almost at once sleep overcame him and he slept to the subdued rhythm of the evening concert and the regular pulsations of his quiet heart. On Sunday the senator appeared with the other gentlemen who had stopped in town during the week and remained until Monday morning. Ices and champagne were served at the table de haute and there were donkey rides and sailing parties out to the open sea. Still, little Johan did not care much for these Sundays. The peaceful isolation of the bath bathing place was broken in upon. A crowd of townsfolk, good middle-class trippers, Ida Jungman called them populated. The Kerr garden and crowded the beach drank coffee and listened to the music. Hanno would have liked to stay in this room until these killjoys in their Sunday clothes went away again. No, he was glad when everything returned to its regular course on Monday, and he felt relieved to feel his father's eyes no more upon him. Two weeks had passed, and Hanno said to himself and to everyone who would listen to him that there was still as much time left as the whole of the Michelin's holidays amounted to. Michaelmas holidays amounted to. It consoled him to say this, but after all it was a specious consolation, for the crest of the holidays had been reached, 
and from now on they were going downhill so quickly, so frightfully quickly, that he would have liked to cling to every moment, not to let it escape, to lengthen every breath he drew of the sea air, to taste every second of his joy. But the time went on relentless, in rain and sun, sea wind and land wind, long spells of brooding warmth and endlessly noisy storms that could not get away out to sea, and went for ever so long. There were days on which the northeast wind filled the bay with dark green floods, covered the beach with seaweed, mussels and jellyfish, and threatened the bathing huts. The turbid heavy sea was covered far and wide with foam. The mighty waves came on in awful, awe-inspiring calm, and the underside of each was a sharp metallic green. Then they crashed with an ear-splitting roar, hissing and thundering along the sand. There were other days when the west wind drove back the sea for a long distance, exposing a gently rolling beach and naked sandbanks everywhere. While the rain came down in torrents, heaven, earth and sea followed into each other and the driving wind carried the rain against the panes, so that not drops but rivers flowed down and made them impossible to see through. Then Hanno stayed in the salon, salon of the Kerr house and played on the little piano that was used to play waltzes and shotsitzes for the balls and was not so good for improvising on as the piano at home. Still one could sometimes get amusing effects out of its muffled and clacking keys, and there were still other days, dreamy, blue, windless, broodingly warm, when the blue flies buzzed in the sun above the Lechton field, and the sea lay silent and like a mirror without stir or breath, when there were only three days left, Hanno said to himself and to everybody else that the time remaining was just so long as the Whitsuntide holiday, but incontestable as this reckoning was, it did not convince even himself. He knew now that the man in the worsted coat was right, and that they would, in very truth, begin again where they had left off and go on to this and that. The laden carriage stood before the door. The day had come. Early in the morning, Hanno had said, goodbye to sea and strand. Now he said it to the waiters as they received their fees to the music pavilion, the rose beds, and the whole long summer as well. And amid the bows of the hotel servants, the carriage drove off. They passed the avenue that led to the little town and rolled along the front. Ida Jungman sat, white-haired, bright-eyed, and angular, opposite Hanno on the back seat, and he squeezed his head into the corner and looked past her out of the window. The morning sky was overcast. The trave was full of little waves that hurried down before the wind. Now and then raindrops spattered their pain. At the farther end of the front, people sat before their house doors and mended nets. Barefoot children ran past and stared inquisitively at the occupants of the carriage. They did not need to go away. As they left the last houses behind, Hanno bent forward once more to look after the lighthouse. Then he leaned back and closed his eyes well. Come back again next year, darling, Ida Jungman said in her grave, soothing voice. It needed only that to make Hanno's chin tremble, and the tears run down beneath his long dark lashes. His face and hands were brown from the sea air, but if his stay at the baths had been intended to harden him, to give him more resistance, more energy, more endurance than it had, then it had failed of its purpose, and Hanno himself was aware of this lamentable fact. These four weeks of sheltered peace and adoration of the sea had not hardened him. They had made him softer than ever, more dreamy and more sensitive. He would be no better able to endure the rigours of her Tietz class. The thought of the rules and history dates, which he had to get by heart and not lost its 
had not lost its power to make him shudder. He knew the feeling too well, and he would fling them away in desperation and go to bed, and suffer next day the torment of the unprepared, and he would be exactly as much afraid of catastrophe that the recital hour, recitation hour of his enemies of Hagenstrom's and of his father's injunctions, not to be faint-hearted, whatever else he was, but he was felt cheered a little by the fresh morning drive through flooded country roads, amid the twitterings of birds, he thought of seeing Kai again and her furl of his music lessons, the piano and his harmonium, and as the morrow was Sunday, a whole day still intervened between him and the first lesson hour. He could feel a few grains of sand from the beach still inside his buttoned boot. How lovely. <coughs> Excuse me. He would ask old Groblebin to leave them there, let it all begin again, the worsted coats, the Hagenstroms and the rest, he had what he had. When the waves of tribulation went over him once more, he would think of the sea and of the Kerr garden, and of the sound made by the little waves coming hither out of the mysterious slumbering distance. One little memory of the sound they made as they plashed against the breakwater could make him oppose an invincible front to all the pains and penalties of his life. Then came the ferry, the Israel Adolfer Avenue, Jerusalem Hill and the Castle Field, on the right side of which rose the walls of the prison where Uncle Winchenk was. Then the carriage rolled along Castle Street and over the Coburg, crossed Broad Street and braked down the steep decline of Fisher's Lane. There was the red house front with the bow window and the white carry tides, and as they went from the midday warmth of the street into the coolness of the stone-flagged entry, the senator, with his pen in his hand, came out of the office to greet them. Slowly, slowly, with secret tears, little Johann learned to live without the sea, to lead an existence that was frightened and bored by turns, to keep out of the way of the Hagenstroms, to console himself with Kai and her furl and his music. The Broad Street, Buttonbrooks and Aunt Clothilda directly, they saw him again, asked him how he liked school after the holidays. They asked, if teasingly, with that curiously superior and slighting air which grown people assume towards children, as if none of their affairs could possibly be worthy of serious consideration, but Hanno was proof against their questions. Three or four days after the homecoming, Dr. Langholz, the family physician, appeared in Fisher's Lane to observe the results of the cure. He had a long consultation with the Frau Senator, and then Hanno was summoned and put, half, half undressed, through a long examination of his status prianus. Preassens, as Dr. Langhouse called it, looking at his fingernails. He tested Hanno's heart action and measured his chest and his lamentable muscular development. He inquired particularly after all his functions, and lastly, with a hypodermic syringe, took a drop of blood from Hanno's slender arm to be tested at home. He seemed, in general, not very well satisfied. You've got rather brown, he said, putting his arm around Hanno as he stood before him. He arranged his small black felled hand upon the boy's shoulder and looked up at the Frau Senator and Ida Jungmann. But we still look very down in the mouth. He is homesick for the sea, said Gerda Buttonbrook. Oh, so you like being there, asked Dr. Langholz, looking with his shallow eyes into Hanno's face. Hanno coloured. What did Dr. Langholz mean by his question, to which he plainly expected an answer? A fantastic hope rose up in him, inspired by the belief that nothing was impossible to God, despite all the worsted-coated men there were in the world. Yes, he brought out, with his wide eyes full open, Dr. Langle's face, full upon Dr. Langle's face. 
But after all, it seemed the physician had nothing particular in mind when he asked the question. Well, the effect of the bathing and the good air is bound to show itself in time, Dr. Langholz said. He tapped little Johan on the shoulder and then put him away with a nod toward the Frau Senator and Ida Jungmann, a superior benevolent nod, the nod of the omniscient physician used to have people hanging on his lips. He got up and the consultation was at an end. It was Aunt Antony who best understood his yearning for the sea and the wound in his heart that healed so slowly and was so likely to bleed afresh under the strain of everyday life. Aunt Antony loved to hear him talk about Travmundi and entered freely into his longings and enthusiasm. Yes, Hannah, she said, the truth is the truth, and Travmundi is and always will be a beautiful spot. Till I go down to my grave, I shall remember the weeks I spent there when I was a slip of a girl, and such a silly young girl. I lived with people I was fond of and who seemed to care for me. I was a pretty young thing in those days, though I am an old woman now, and full of life and high spirits. They were splendid people, I can tell you, respectable and kind-hearted and straight-thinking, and they were cleverer and better educated too than any I've known since, and they had more enthusiasm. Yes, my life seemed very dull when I lived with them, and I learned a great deal, which I've never forgotten. Information, beliefs, opinions, ways of looking at things. If other things hadn't interfered, as all sorts of things did, the way life goes, you know, I should... I might have learned a great deal more from them. Shall I tell you how silly I was in those days? I thought I could get the pretty star out of the jellyfish, and I carried a quantity home with me, and spread them in the sun on the balcony to dry, but when I looked at them again, of course, there was nothing but a big wet spot and the smell of rotten seaweed. And that's chapter three. Really, uh, we're really honing in on, um, on young Hanno, aren't we, recently? And I like that. I like that. Okay. Uh, that's that chapter. I'll leave it there for today, and I will see you tomorrow.